Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Care about appropriate weight loss and even weight gain, then from a root cause perspective, that's symptomology. That means that it's really not about body fat. It really is about skeletal muscle. And issues within skeletal muscle happen decades before, before you're even gaining weight, before there's adiposity. These issues with adiposity, they're multifactorial, but one cannot discount the role of skeletal muscle as the root cause of all of these diseases. Welcome to Hormone Happy Hour. We are your hosts, Yasmin and Kea. And in 2021, we started a company called Bia that's dedicated to empowering women to take control of their health and understand their hormones. And in the process, we've learned so much from experts all around the world, and we can't keep that information to ourselves. So here we are sharing it with the world because everyone deserves healthy and happy hormones. So Yasmin, hormone happy hour time. Cheers to you. What are you drinking? Yes. (laughs) So mine might be a little basic right now, but I just was telling you, I came back from a walk. I'm trying to like pop out of the house more often, incorporate more sunlight. And I got a little thirsty. So I just have water with electrolytes and we use this brand. Have you heard about it? Light Pow? Yes. Is it? Is it? What is it? Is it Light Show? Is it? Maybe, maybe it's, 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 a, it's the brand is light line. Maybe this is like one of their ones, but oh, cool. it's just an electrolyte powder. I use it with water every, every time I'm feeling like thirsty. I'm trying to like keep my dehydration game on point and drink enough water every day. So that's what I'm drinking. But you are way more interesting than me with all your drinks. So tell me, girl, what are you drinking? I mean, it's really it, so this is Spindrift because I'm. I know you don't like sparkling water, but I love sparkling water and all of the really popular brands were all tested to be positive with some really toxic stuff. So I've been trying to have better varieties. I like Spindrift because it's just carbonated water, raspberry puree and lime juice, and that's it. So it doesn't have any funky like natural flavors or anything like that. Um, So... I I need to I need to chill with the sparkling water, but I can't. It's an addiction. But what's nice about you is like you don't drink it quickly, right? You kind of like sip on it all day, right? <laughs> <laughs> or am I making that up? No, it's so true. <laughs> it takes me probably about an hour to finish my coffee, and maybe I'll drink uh, if I have a beverage it's about two hours that I'll be sipping on it but yeah I'm not I don't pound anything I'm just I just like having a lot of beverages around taking a few sips of each one and yeah yeah. like I if I have sparkling water the reason why I don't love it because I like OD I'll drink the whole thing in like 10 minutes and then I feel like bloated and it's like so much yeah I guess it's like the bloated feeling so I just never drink it but maybe sipping on it is a way to go like a normal bubbles the bubbles can mess people (laughs) Yeah, well, I wanted to start today's episode by talking about something very cool. Yasmin, you recently went on a guided psilocybin retreat 
for anyone who doesn't know what psilocybin is, it's mushrooms. It's magical mushrooms. So you went with some of our family members and I want to hear about it. How was this trip for you? Oh my gosh, we'll have to do like another episode to talk more about it, but it was amazing. And, you know, Kay mentioned we went with family. So I was with her parents. So my in-laws, Drew, my husband, um, a good friend of ours, our brother-in-law, another friend. So it was like a big family friend reunion. And, you know, it was interesting. It's funny because I had so many people hit me up asking me like, Yasmin, tell me everything. Like, how was the journey? How was the experience? And the most, and this, you know, this, again, this is my personal um, journey, but the most impactful aspect of this retreat. So we basically were there for about four days. And the first three days, I really encourage you to not be on technology, um, you know, not have your phone around and really meditate, do yoga, body work every day. I'm like, this is like the life. Like if the, it was amazing just to even like unplug and kind of be in that mindset because they want you to essentially be more calm and be in a lower orbit before going on the journey and taking the mushrooms. But that entire, you know, I've never not been on my phone. I've never not been around technology and really just having time to be present and eat great food and unplug was something that was so mind blowing to me from my experience because I, you know, it's funny. I always think that I'm someone who, I'm always on the go. I'm always thinking about ways to like calm my nervous system down. Like I've always looked at myself as like a high intensity person. My acupuncturist the other day just said, oh, your heartbeat has a little kick to it. Like that's how, that's like who I am. I was like, I've never heard someone say it. But so I've always looked at myself like that. But when I really was able to step away from technology and really be in the moment for four days, I was so calm. It was actually incredible. And so, you know, me leaving that experience is like, how can I integrate these mindfulness practices, maybe slow down a little bit because I'm always 150 like miles per hour because being calm just allows you to just be more in the moment, be more fulfilled. It's easier as a leader running a business, doing like two podcasts. It just makes things just more, I don't like the word easier, but just more fulfilling from my perspective. So I know that was a lot right there. So that was like the general feeling, but the journey itself, I'll try to keep it quick. So I didn't do a high heroic dose. So a lot, you know, people always ask, like, did you see certain images and experiences? Like mine was lower than, I guess, a quote unquote heroic dose. And, um, you know, we did it in a group setting and I learned this after the fact, but I think I really feel people's energy. I know Kaya, we talk about this a lot in general and just being on mushroom just made me realize like, wow, I am feeling every single person's energy in this room. And so the experience was more so of tapping into other people versus like my own journey of seeing something specific or going through some type of emotional, you know, response that I might have had. It was more so tapping into other people. And, you know, I've never really, I've never done drugs before. Like, honestly, maybe I've smoked weed a handful of times. It just never was my thing. So I kind of went in there a little bit with some fear, right? So I, I had that like light level fear. So anytime somebody was making noises or laughing and I thought they'd be crying, like I kind of got a little nervous, but throughout the whole time, I was actually, again, calmer than I thought. I was like, wow, despite me being nervous about this and hearing this noise, you know, over the course of a few hours, I just realized like, 
wow, I'm actually very calm and I'm good. Like I'm actually good when I'm, I go within with myself. So a long winded way of four days of just me realizing that the power is within me. Right. And if I can just tap into that more often in my day to day, you know, it's very different when you're in a retreat and you're not working, you're not in your day to day, but it's also like, how do you take that and incorporate it in your normal life, right? Where you're on calls, you're on Zooms, you're doing a bunch of things. So it's just got me thinking a lot about how do I drop into that more often? And how do I integrate that life in my busier, normal day? How did you feel coming back from the experience? You know, it was a transition, like dropping into life. But I think actually one thing that I started doing, and I think we talked about this in another podcast interview, which is coming out soon with Mona. Um, I've been carving out my mornings. So I've always thought I needed to wake up early to start working early, you know, working out early. Like for some reason, that's always been ingrained in my head. And I think having slower mornings and I'm now meditating, I'm not rushing into the day. It sounds so simple, but it's actually setting the tone and priming me for my day where I'm more of a happier person. I know my intentions going into the day of like, what am what's the bigger message? What's the impact? What's the goal I want to make versus going straight to those five emails. And next thing you know, it's like 10 a.m., 12 p.m. So, you know, I would say that is something that I've taken from my time in this retreat is just slower mornings where I can meditate. Um, and listen, you know, some days are busier than others. Like I had a really busy week. We just hired somebody. Shout out to Lydia, who's amazing. And it was a busier week. But even if I got 10 minutes of that morning, it was still game changing. So that's kind of one practice I'm doing. I'm still trying to figure out other things I can integrate. You know, I just went on a walk. So like more movement and breaks throughout the day. But those have actually been super game changing for me. Um, yeah. And I think that one thing people don't real, or at least I'll speak for myself. One thing that I didn't realize is that your health and your wellness is a journey. It's mm -hmm. not a destination. So it's not that, Hey, for six months, I'm going to meditate and then I'm going to be enlightened or for six months, I'm going to work out and I'm going to be in great shape. And then that's it. No, this is something that is a daily commitment. So making time for the rest of your life. And I think when you have that perspective of, hey, I'm in this forever versus I'm in this until I get to a certain point, it can be, it can really change the game. At least for me, it really changed the game. And I think in today's episode, especially when it comes to working out, we have someone who will motivate anyone yeah. to get off their butt and really commit. And she is walking the talk. She is strength training. She is doing all the things um, every single day. And it's a good reminder, I think, for me that if something's important to you, you have to make time for it forever. And that's the only way that it's going to be a part of your life. So that brings us to today's episode. Yes, and today's guest is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is a Washington University fellowship-trained physician in nutritional science and geriatrics and is board certified in family medicine. She completed her undergraduate degree in human nutrition, vitamins, and mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois. And she's also the founder of the Institute of Muscle-Centric Medicine and has a private practice that services leaders, innovators, and Mavericks Special Operations Military. I actually did not know that. That's amazing. And executives in their perspective fields. 
So Dr. Gabrielle Lyons' husband is, I believe, a Navy SEAL. So she works with a lot of people in the military and she's super inspiring that way. And I think the thing that I took away from this episode is I've never been more inspired to just become a badass strength trainer. And I think I fully understand the importance of muscle and muscle as the organ of longevity. I think that you're going to walk away from this episode feeling like if I don't work on my muscle, if I don't use it, I'm going to lose it. And that doesn't mean just for your actual muscles. It means for your brain. It means for your heart. It means for your total body. I love that, Kaya. And I actually loved how Dr. Lyon just talked about her recommendations around protein because I always feel like am I eating enough protein? And how much is too much? How much is too little? And she really goes into all of those details. And honestly, how so many women are deficient in protein. So I really loved her recommendations around that. Yeah. So if you are looking for specific recommendations around how much protein to eat per meal, what does that look like? What are vegetarian sources of protein? You're going to want to check this episode out. So let's get into it. I want to talk about weight loss and weight gain. The weight loss industry is obviously huge and targeting women from like the moment that we're, we hit puberty and for the rest of our lives. But you actually, and it's focused primarily on calories in, calories out, fad dieting, but you have a different viewpoint, uh, which kind of talks about over fat and under muscled. And I don't hear anyone talk about this. It's not hit mainstream and it's so important. So can you dive into this? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really funny for the listener. Uh, Kaya, how long have we known each other now? Eight years or something. Seven. Seven. A long time. And how long have I been talking about this? For the whole time. <laughs> for the whole time. And that just, just is a little bit of perspective in this concept of exactly what you're talking about. So over fat versus under muscled. And it, Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. When we think about obesity, weight loss, weight gain, everybody targets adiposity, which is essentially body fat. And I can appreciate why. And typically it's because that's what you see. And perhaps, you know, from a female perspective, it really affects the way people feel about themselves. I also have to say, coming from a place of root cause, we've totally missed the mark. Mm. If we care about appropriate weight loss and even weight gain, then from a a root cause perspective, that's symptomology. Okay, so the listener is thinking, well, what does that mean? That means that it's really not about body fat. It really is about skeletal muscle. And issues within skeletal muscle happen decades before right? Before you're even gaining weight, before there's adiposity. And and I I hesitate to say this in black and white terms because obviously obesity, these issues with adiposity, they're multifactorial, just meaning they have multiple causes, but one cannot discount the role of skeletal muscle as the root cause of all of these diseases. Um, And what do I mean by the, the root cause of these diseases? Typically, we're thinking about obesity and metabolic dysfunction and dysregulation and diabetes, cardiovascular disease, elevated blood markers like triglycerides, the thing that the listener probably goes to their doctor and is like, hey, what's up with this? Mm -hmm. Well, that's all very relevant. 
And the reality is these issues are directly affected by skeletal muscle. And that is why I believe that we don't actually have an obesity epidemic. I think that we have a muscle crisis. That's so interesting. So what does it mean to be under-muscled? Yeah, great question. The concept of being under-muscled, you know, typically if we take a step back and look at the literature, the way in which we look at muscle is really as it relates to sarcopenia. And I'm a trained geriatrician by trade. So I, I did my fellowship at WashU in geriatrics. And for people that don't know, geriatrics is specializing in the ages of people over the age of 65. So it's really this aging trajectory, right? So I did um, obesity medicine in my research, and then I looked at obesity medicine, and then this clinically, this trajectory of aging, which is really about sarcopenia and loss of muscle mass. And there are very clear parameters of what a sarcopenic, I say clear parameters, uh, there's a working model of what we believe sarcopenia is. And typically, it's overall muscle decrease in muscle mass at a certain percentage and a decrease in muscle function. Mm -hmm. um, and I say it as if these things are very easily tested. The interesting part is the muscle function part is easily tested. So I can tell you how fast it's going to take, you know, you guys to walk a certain amount of meters or how many times you can sit to stand or how good your grip strength is, which is a whole nother uh, topic in and of itself. But what I can't tell you is number one, what is the quality of your muscle? How much muscle do you actually have? Mm -hmm. These are not standardized things that we test for. So your question is, how do we know if we're under muscled? I would say, aside from bodybuilders, every single person can use more healthy muscle. And the way in which you're going to track it uh, is that when you are getting a DEXA scan for bones, which, you know, people think a lot about bone uh, density, one should always be getting a body composition DEXA as well. Okay. I know that this is kind of a, a little bit of uh, in the weeds, but the big takeaway here is understanding what is your amount of skeletal muscle mass, which is difficult to assess because typically they look at lean muscle mass or lean mass, and what is your percent body fat? And the big takeaway is everybody can benefit from more healthy muscle. So if you're talking about our audience is primarily, I would say, women between the age of 25 to about 55. Yeah mostly a lot of women in their reproductive years. Perfect. So talking to that group of people, would you say, because I'm looking around myself, my friends, <laughs> we're pretty much all under muscled. Everybody. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, the other thing that you think about when you think about that age group is you think about fertility mm -hmm. and PCOS. Um, I believe there's a huge component of PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome or, uh, you know, and that really affects fertility, which a woman doesn't ovulate appropriately, her cycles are irregular, that there's a component of that that is skeletal muscle related. And skeletal muscle insulin resistance plays a role. And looking at making sure that your muscles are strong and healthy, resistance exercise, appropriate protein can actually help with polycystic, with PCOS. And that's a really big takeaway for women in their reproductive years. Yeah. I think I was talking to... Um a PCOS doctor. And she said in the literature, exercise is the number one thing that they've seen that can impact PCOS. And 
you don't really, you know, your doctor gives you the diagnosis, oh, you have PCOS, yeah. here's a birth control pill, but they're not telling you go lift weights. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, right? You, uh, uh, a provider can't be good at everything. And there mm -hmm. are fitness professionals that have spent their life being fitness professionals and exercise physiologists. And it becomes very challenging because there isn't a standardization of exercise. You know, there's a standard of a standard of a standardization of nutrition and a standard standardization of blood uh, blood markers. But when it comes to exercise, the biggest challenge is the exercise prescriptions are not typically standardized, right? So there's multiple different inputs to get an outcome, whether, and what do I mean by that? Whether it's uh, resistance training for strength or hypertrophy, is it cardiovascular activity that's like a zone two kind of low level activity, or is it high intensity interval training or sprint interval training? And what you're actually pointing out is a huge gap in our ability to move the needle for people because there is not a standardization of exercise, even in the terminology of what's being done. And then if you take it one step further, it's much easier to measure nutrition and medicine and algorithmic outputs. For example, if someone was treating PCOS and they say, okay, we're gonna use metformin, you'll be able to give 500 milligrams of metformin twice a day and potentially look at an outcome. I'll say, I want you to have 120 grams of protein and 120 grams of carbohydrates and 90 grams of fat, and I can measure the outcome. So I can measure the input and I can measure the outcome. When it comes to exercise and specifically as it relates to exercise recommendations mm -hmm. to improve being under muscled, I could say, hey, um, you ladies, I want you to go out and squat. And one of you might be able to squat and actually activate your quads and your glutes, whereas the other person might be squatting and might be all back. Mm -hmm. So I and you might eventually get stronger, but the input and the output is so much more difficult. Movement is so much more difficult to really look at that outcome. And I'm curious. Gabrielle, like you, you know, in your practice, what are the guidelines you recommend when it comes to exercise or fitness? You know, whether yeah. it's someone in the reproductive years or kind of going into perimenopause and menopause. I know there's a lot in there, but yeah. Uh, well, number one, we always collaborate with our trainers um, to get a sense of, okay, what is their baseline body composition? What is their skeletal muscle mass? What is their body fat percentage? What is their marker? So we look at everything. Without a shadow of a doubt, though, there are fundamental things. Again, so exercise, the goal of exercise is to create a stimulus, a mm -hmm. stimulus and an adaptation for a particular outcome. The particular outcomes I'm looking for in my practice is strength and improvement. So strength, I want to see them uh, improve in whatever the, the markers are that we pick. So, for example, if it's push-ups, if it's pull-ups, if it's a dead hang, if it's a squat, bench press, deadlift, I actually want to see improvement in whichever particular marker. So strength improvement is very important. Mm -hmm. The next thing that I always recommend is, and, and this is really twofold, is some kind of initially a high intensity interval training. And that has a lot of different connotations, right? High intensity, when people think about high intensity interval training, you know, oftentimes people think of orange theory or, yeah. you know, kind of going at not a maximal effort, but perhaps a sub-maximal effort for a period of time. I think adding in some kind of high intensity interval, which is 
um, you know, it could be 85% of your capacity. Uh, once a week is really, really valuable. And the goal is to actually be able to get enough of an engine and capacity to do a sprint interval workout. Which, by the way, I've been negotiating with myself all day about yeah. how I can get out of doing a sprint interval workout. <laughs> so what is that? Yeah, yeah what when is I say the sprint interval workout is a is a all out max effort. And it might take you four minutes total, right? Because okay. you have to, you know, you're talking about perhaps, and there's multiple different ways to do it, but 10 seconds at your absolute high threshold. And it's terrible, horrible. Um, you never want to do it. It's never fun. And it takes a lot of mental uh, strength, which is why I recommend it. And it doesn't have to be done every week. It could be done every two weeks. But I think that it's really important to build that mental resiliency muscle to do that. Um you know, and so those are the things that I recommend. And then the other thing is a baseline of cardiovascular activity. Mm -hmm. And the current recommendation is 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity, which is 30 minutes a day. And that could be just getting your heart rate up, um, you know, where you're still talking, that kind of a thing. Sounds like a lot of activity, right? It does. So we're looking at building strength at least how many times a week? Three to four times a week, Three strength to four or hypertrophy. And I want the listener to understand there's so many different ways to do it, mm -hmm. but pick one, execute on it, and then go from there. So this is, this is, you know, an appropriate way for a beginner to start. Yep. Okay. So we're looking at strength or hypertrophy three times a week, mm -hmm. cardiovascular, cardio 30 minutes a day and some yeah, or just 150 minutes, you know, like figure out how that's going to work. That um, yep. And that's easy. Like take your dog for a jog or your kid for a jog or your husband, you know, whatever it is. Get yeah, on the bike. That could probably even be play sports, tennis, you know, just ways to incorporate fun into your life. And then we're and then hit training once a week. Yeah. And you, you can do hit training more, but like start there. Yeah. So I want to go back to what you were talking about with PCOS um, yeah. and how there's a component of skeletal muscle involved. What is the connection? I want to dive deeper into it between skeletal muscle, insulin resistance and metabolic health. Yeah, this is very important. And some of the earliest work on this was uh, done by a guy named uh, Gerald Shulman out of Yale and his wife, Kit Peterson. And they looked at insulin clamps, hyperglycemic insulin clamps, which is just one of the gold standard ways. I actually had to do those in um, when I was in fellowship, super not fun, um, but it's the gold standard way of looking at um, insulin and glucose partitioning, like where it's going. Is it going in skeletal muscle? Is it going in liver? And um, you know, there are a lot of challenges with an insulin clamp, but you know, the big the big part about this is. He determined, and some of his research determined that insulin resistance, and listen, if you ask where insulin resistance starts and you Google it, you'll find a million different places, right? This is an ongoing hypothesis and there's multiple different people with multiple different perspectives. But I come from a muscle-centric view, and so this is my bias. And also I've been in practice for quite some time. And so uh, originally, just to qualify where this comes from. So originally, this research really indicated that a healthy, young, 18-year-old, sedentary, non-overweight individual, non-smoking, 
showed that when they were sedentary, they had insulin resistance and skeletal muscle while they were lean, before they had markers that would indicate skeletal muscle insulin resistance. So where does this play a role? Well, number one is understanding that by the time you are, quote, pre-diabetic, by the time you are starting to see elevations in uh, blood sugar, by the time you are starting to see elevations in insulin, fasting insulin, you are already in a pathologic state. You already have dysfunctional skeletal muscle. Mm -hmm. If you are sedentary, you likely have dysfunctional muscle. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because again, we're always talking about obesity as obesity is like this endpoint. There's been disease already happening way before that. Mm -hmm. Where does insulin resistance and metabolic health come into play? Well, let's talk about as I think about, you know, you mentioned something in the beginning of this conversation and you said, people always talk about calories in, calories out as this model for weight loss. And then the next kind of realm or pillar would be um, the carbohydrate insulin model. Well, I believe that there's a third model and I am working on a white paper about this with my mentor, Dr. Donald Lehman. And I believe that there is a muscle centric model of obesity, meaning before we are talking about carbohydrates and insulin, we have to understand skeletal muscle is the primary, the primary point for glucose disposal. So what's glucose disposal? When you eat food, when you eat carbohydrates, it has to go somewhere. Storage form in liver is, is minimal. The primary site for glucose disposal is skeletal muscle. That is the primary site. Once that is dysfunctional or full, right? Everyone has heard of, um, you know, when you eat, um, right? Obviously, it goes through a process of uh, carbohydrates go through a process of digestion, and then it goes into the bloodstream. Well, has to go somewhere. And the primary site is skeletal muscle. So it goes to skeletal muscle. If that muscle is unhealthy and that muscle is not exercised and that muscle has high amounts of what, you know, fatty acid metabolites, you know, and, and you know, it's kind of like thinking about if your skeletal muscle looks like a marbled steak, mm -hmm. right? Essentially, and I say this simply, but it could be fat in the muscle, fat around the muscle. It, it has to go somewhere and it goes back. It stays in the bloodstream. So this is the primary site. And then you're getting adiposity and then you're getting fatty liver. So one must understand that if you want to think about metabolic correction, you must address skeletal muscle for glucose disposal, fatty acid oxidation. You know, the majority of your mitochondria are also in skeletal muscle. Um, so really energy utilization is happening in skeletal muscle. Skeletal mu muscle makes up 40% of your body. And Gabby, I have a question and I probably should have asked this in the earlier in the interview, but it might be very basic. Can you talk about what skeletal muscle is relative to other muscles? Because you said it's 40%. Yeah. So be yeah. curious to know about that. Well, my husband would joke and say he's like 55% skeletal <laughs> muscle, but whatever. Um, there are three major types of muscle. There's smooth muscle. Oftentimes you think about the uterus. There's uh, cardiac muscle and there's skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is under, it's a striated muscle under voluntary control, which is incredible to think about it because skeletal muscle is not just this nebulous kind of tissue. It's actually mm -hmm. in and of its whole an endocrine organ. Mm. It is actually an organ system. 
much like the cardiovascular system, much like the pulmonary system or the lungs, skeletal muscle is in and of itself its own endocrine organ, its own metabolic system. And and skeletal muscle is the muscles like the bicep or the quad or the glutes, these, these muscles under voluntary control. Got it. And by the way, by the way, uh, for the moms out there and for the soon-to-be moms, the healthier you are in pregnancy, the healthier your baby is going to be. The, the fitter you are, it's really interesting. We're, we're starting to believe that there is some translation to the physical capacity of the child. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's pretty cool. And that, um, you know, physical activity, when you think about natural strength and strength, like I talked about, the the time in which that's really built is during the time when an individual is growing and especially during adolescence. So I know that that's a sidebar, but I also know that we have a lot of female listeners and what's more important than the health of your child or soon to be child or, you know, any of those, those domains. Yeah, I, I want to get into that because I have some questions around it too, but I want to make sure that we wrap up what we were saying before. So um, we were talking about metabolic health and skeletal muscle. As the primary, as, you know, where is its role? Um, so, yes. you know, where is its role in health? So basically as you're eating, you know, this is, skeletal muscle is the primary site. So insulin resistance and insulin resistance is simply, so insulin is made in the pancreas. It's made in the beta cells in the pancreas and its role when you are younger is growth, quite frankly. Um, and as you get older, this is really important to understand is that insulin's primary role is when an individual is younger, right? It is a growth, like it's an anabolic hormone. And growth in all things, growth in muscle. Um, as you age, it no longer is a growth hormone per se. You are not growing. Where it comes into play is its primary role is to regulate glucose. So as glucose enters the body, the pancreas produces insulin to move glucose out of those cells, out of the bloodstream into those into the cells in the body. Yeah. So I think what I love about this third model that you're talking about is that it's kind of empowering because it's another way that people who are dealing with metabolic dysfunction can attack the problem. hundred percent. Do diet. They can, you know, if they need the meds, whatever it is working with their doctor, but then this is like, Hey, if you're out there, you're listening to this, you have prediabetes, you have insulin resistance. There's this whole field that you can step into that can change your life. Tell me one other endocrine system that we have direct control over, like direct mm. control over. I have goosebumps. <laughs> it's very yeah. empowering and it's critical. So basically what's happened is there's been this perpetuation of a very disempowering model. Mm -hmm. Obesity, listen, obesity has not gotten better. It's only gotten worse. Mm. And, you know, and I think in business, right, um, in business, when you identify the problem, you can course correct the problem. But if you identify the wrong problem, you're never going to get to the end point. So right now we've identified the wrong problem. The problem is not obesity. Yes, is obesity an issue? Is obesity unhealthy? Does it drive low-grade inflammation? Absolutely. My argument here is that paradigms are working models that we create. And we, when I say we, I say globally, we have created this paradigm that is incredibly limited. It's a paradigm around obesity. But 
if obesity is here, it's like, it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. It's, this is muscle. Like this is the real part. This is the part that we actually can control. This is the part that changes as we get older. This part, this skeletal muscle piece is the piece that we have direct influence over and is actually the key to health. It's the organ of longevity in it. If we can understand and appreciate it as an organ system, we then can shift and understand that everything we do should not be targeted towards obesity or fat. Everything we do needs to be targeted to skeletal muscle because we can directly influence it and change the trajectory of the way we age. I love that. And I love when you say it's the organ of longevity. Uh, I want to get into that because the diseases of aging kind of start a lot sooner than people think in mm -hmm. their 30s, sometimes 20s. We need to be thinking about this stuff. So when it comes to things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, maybe even some cancers, things like that, that people start to think about as they get older, you're saying we need to focus on our skeletal muscle. What is the common denominator of all those things? Do you know where this came from? So I I was in my fellowship at WashU and I um, was working on this study where I was looking at waist uh, circumference and brain volume. So basically waist circumference, brain volume, cognitive function, right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a part of a fellow's job is you run an obesity clinic and you run a uh, cognitive clinic. And I realized I had this moment, I, I had this moment, I was working with one of these participants and I, I had this moment where I kept seeing all these participants and, and one participant, you know, uh, I became very attached to. And she, you know, was like a mom of three and she'd always put everyone first and, you know, 15, 20 pounds overweight, constantly yo-yo dieting and really buying into this obesity model. And I imaged her brain and her brain looked like an Alzheimer's brain. Wow. And I felt really, per I felt like I failed her, even though I obviously had just met her. I maybe felt, um, you know, like a disproportionate amount of responsibility, but I realized thinking about her, we failed her. And then I had this aha moment, right? that all the people that I was seeing in the obesity clinic, uh, on the hospital wards, like the Alzheimer component, you know, the Alzheimer uh, clinic, the, the nursing homes, it wasn't that they all had obesity. The major common denominator was they all had dysfunctional muscle. And so you asked me, you said to me, well, um, you know, Gabrielle, you're saying that cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, uh, uh, diabetes, obesity, you know, that all of these things, what do they have in common? Well, on the surface, one could say metabolic dysfunction, and I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. But I would also say, you don't have to be overweight to get heart disease. You don't have to be overweight to get Alzheimer's. But you all have to have some kind of level. I mean, I, I, I say this like you all, there's genetic components of metabolic dysfunction. And that metabolic dysfunction originates in skeletal muscle. So you're saying everybody's talking about metabolic dysfunction, which is here. Yeah. And we need to go here. Like, yeah. okay, it's great. It's, it's so odd to me. You know, they're talking about elevated levels of triglycerides yeah. and they're talking about too much carbohydrate consumption. And we're talking about levels of fasting glucose that's elevated and elevated levels of insulin. And it's like obesity, carbohydrates, obesity, carbohydrates, calories in, calories out. Okay, but that's all great. 
How does that happen? Yeah. Where, where does that happen from? Right. If we can take the blinders off the paradigms of which that we have self-imposed and created, then we can actually address the real problem that I believe is the real problem. And, and the real problem is skeletal muscle. And what's mind blowing, I heard you say in another interview that, you know, as you as especially for women, as you enter perimenopause and menopause, you have a rapid decline in muscle mass, right? Yeah. So it's like more so important for women to be thinking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to happen. But you have to understand that um, the habits that you set up in your 30s, the, the capacity in which you are moving, you know, it, it's so fascinating because physical activity and movement is you know, chances are nobody's getting enough. Mm. And we're so disconnected from what the body should be doing because we are sedentary. Even if you are going to bang it out in CrossFit for an hour a day, then you're coming back and sitting down. You know, um, we are sedentary and that is the reality of what has now happened. We have to really incorporate and actively think about ways to include more movement and things that are a bit physically uncomfortable. And we are so far removed from that, that it's no surprise to me that we have this decline that happens. I'm especially passionate about this for the South Asian community because South Asian women are lean. Yes. They, you know, they might not have the typical signs of having metabolic dysfunction, exactly. but they all, I don't want to say all, but many women get to a certain age, they go through menopause, postmenopause, they have osteoporosis. Mm. They can't even really walk well. They can't lift themselves into a car. It's just a rapid decline that nobody would see because there's what somebody, a doctor might say, oh, you're lean, you're fine. I so appreciate you brought that up. I would argue that bone density decreases for nearly everybody. Bone density, men and women, bone density is going to decrease. There's not much that we can do about it. So yes, you can do drug interventions. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, you can do calcium and, and, and those kinds of things. But left to its natural course, skele- um, bone will decline. Skeletal muscle doesn't necessarily have to. Skeletal muscle is likely a bigger predictor and has more impact on fracture risk than bone density. Skeletal muscle likely has more of an impact on fracture risk than bone quality. Because if you have healthy skeletal muscle, you are able to navigate. You are able to avoid falls. You are able... Mm -hmm to have a certain amount of strength. And that's critical to understand. Yeah. Shout it from the rooftops. I know. Don't get me started. You know me. Like, (laughs) come on. Yeah, we have to, we really have to shift this conversation. The the conversation needs to be changed. And the, the biggest danger that we have as humans and with the internet and with social media is that once, it's almost as if once we get into one way of thinking, if we don't um, question where these thought processes came from and how effective we are, um, it's almost like a mass mentality. And so we'll continue to reiterate that. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Absolutely. If the ultimate endpoint for health and wellness is aging well. Mm. Which I think for most people, if they answered, they would say, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I do want to talk about the dietary component, um, especially when it comes to protein, because you are the protein gal. Um, what are, you know, I grew up vegetarian, definitely under eating protein that shifted in my 20s. And, you know, I my life changed when I started to incorporate the right amount of protein. I don't necessarily want to say it was because of animal protein or this or that, but I was just eating more protein, I know mm-hmm. for sure. Why is protein so important and why is it still so underrated? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we think about what we need to survive and what we need to thrive. We don't actually need carbohydrates. I don't want to talk about protein in and of itself alone. I want to kind of give you a perspective. Carbohydrates, our bodies can generate what we need. That doesn't mean that there's not benefit to eating it. There's phytonutrients and fiber. There's all these things. But when it just comes down to glucose, our bodies can generate it. When it comes down to fat, our bodies actually make, make palmitate, which is a saturated fatty acid. Our bodies actually make it, and it can make it from um, nutrients that we that we eat. It can make it from carbohydrates. There are there is an essential fatty acid need that we have to get from the diet. Very small essential fatty acids. When it comes to protein, however, protein is an essential macronutrient, mm-hmm. meaning there are amino acids that we absolutely cannot make, the majority of the population. I say this very hesitantly because there might be, you know, 2% of the population that has some special microbiome that can generate some amino acid. But the reality is, is there are essential amino acids that every human needs to survive. We have to get that from the diet. Putting that in perspective, I've told you that we can generate carbohydrates, that for the most part, we can generate fatty acids, um, but we do need some very small amount of essential fatty acids. But dietary protein, we must eat. And why do we need protein? Well, it's not protein, you know, universal, right? It's interesting because we, we talk about protein as if it's like one single thing, like here's the protein. But the reality is I would need a collection of 20 different objects like here here's all my lip gloss here's my thing here's all my 20 amino acids that make up protein so protein is not some singular term dietary protein is made up of 20 different amino acids of those 20 different amino acids nine of which are essential we have to get them from the diet and every essential amino acid has its own role And the other big thing is they're not all equally essential. So these nine amino acids, these nine essential amino acids are not equally essential. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? You're like, well, what does that mean? Out of those nine essential amino acids, there are the branch chain amino acids. And a branch chain amino acid is simply the, the structure of the amino acid. It has a branching. Of those, there's leucine, my favorite, isoleucine and valine, okay? This is different than say um, tryptophan or another amino acid because leucine is in particular critical for muscle health, muscle stimulation. For example, lysine, which is another amino acid, you can get that in smaller amounts and it's no problem. Or tryptophan, you can get in smaller amounts and it's no problem, but leucine, Leucine is a very unique amino acid that is required by the body 
to be recognized in a certain amount through food or however else you're getting it um, to reach a certain blood level to trigger the effects on muscle. Essentially, what I'm saying is if you eat for muscle health, then all the other amino acids, the essential amino acids will fall into place. And that's why I'm so passionate about muscle health, number one, because I know muscle is the organ of longevity. And number two, which I don't often talk about, is if we eat for muscle health, all those essential amino acid needs are met. It makes it easy for people. We target the most important. And then the other needs for muscle, for example, like protein turnover. Your skin, your hair, your gut, your liver, it's not doesn't just exist. It has to constantly rebuild. It goes through turnover process. In fact, the body probably turns over anywhere from, you know, 250 grams of protein or more a day. It turns over. Mm. Dietary protein is part of that turnover process. And as we age, the body becomes less efficient at protein turnover. Wow. And these are just a few of the reasons, not to mention neurotransmitters, not to mention hormonal status, you know, not to mention, you know, anything that you could possibly think of likely comes from the foundation of these amino acids. It's mm -hmm. what we were built upon. Mm -hmm. So for somebody who's listening to us, most likely because they're interested in their hormones, they maybe are struggling with the hormonal imbalance. Yeah. Protein is very much connected to this. Great. Let me clear. Yes. And let me do a intellectually responsible job of clarifying this. You are not going to just eat protein and not go through menopause. You are not. And if you are a guy listening to this, because you're listening to this for your wife, you are not going to just eat protein and your testosterone levels are going to skyrocket. Not going to happen. However, when you have healthy skeletal muscle and you have healthy body composition, and you have low levels of inflammation because you're not a metabolic mess, your potential for optimizing your hormones and of course having all of the other lifestyle factor pieces together, you are going to have the best possible outcome naturally that you're going to be able to have. Mm. Um, and, and that's really important to understand. In addition, when you think about uh, dietary amino acids, you do think about these precursors for neurotransmitters. The, you know, if you eat a diet high in dietary protein, are you going to uh, somehow balance all your neurotransmitters? Not necessarily, but you are going to provide the baseline building blocks to make sure that you don't have any amino acid deficiencies, which is very uncommon. However, it's not overt deficiencies. I think that there is you know, um, it's really about optimization. So what can an individual do to be optimized, right? And the way in which you do that is you get the appropriate amount of amino acids for all these other things. I'll give you a specific example to put this into context. Uh, one of the amino acids, threonine, is necessary for the production of mucin. Mucin is what is in your gut lining to help with mucus production for protection. If you don't get enough dietary threonine, what's going to happen? You're probably not going to make enough mucin. Hmm. If you don't get enough of arginine, which is a precursor for NO2 and vasodilation, you might have difficulties with vasodilation and you could potentially have issues with blood pressure. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and this is sometimes why when we give someone a supplement who is, say, on a low protein diet and you give them arginine, you find that their blood pressure can get better mm-hmm. because they've been eating a lower protein diet. Mm. These are very specific examples um, to put it into perspective of- I want to touch on that too, because I was reading that during pregnancy, a lot of women struggle with preeclampsia. And one of the best ways to, if you're listening to this, it's high blood pressure and all these other markers that come along. But um, yes, liver, elevated liver, it could be be very dangerous for the mother and the baby. And one of the things they were saying is that a higher protein diet can actually help prevent preeclampsia and even treat it in some situations, which I thought was mind blowing. And probably not a lot of doctors are telling pregnant women this. You know, it's interesting, again, and why is it is that we have to understand that these molecules, you know, while we think about protein as just this one thing, it's really 20 different amino acids. And the need of those different amino acids are, are, are variable. And that is one of the reasons why I believe so strongly in high quality protein. And people think, okay, well, like high quality protein has a a bad name, right? Like high and low quality. And again, these are just hard, fast biological numbers. You know, from my perspective, it's just how much leucine is actually in this food. Uh, That's it. You know, how much methionine is in this food? How much lysine is in this food? These are the things that we're thinking about because the specifics of these individual amino acids. And I'm curious, can you give some examples of what high quality protein is for anybody yeah, who doesn't of know? Of course. So high quality proteins, uh, I'm just going to uh, give a definition. High quality proteins are those proteins that have the highest amount of essential amino acids. Mm-hmm. And that's how we do, because again, uh, as I mentioned before, we really eat for the essential amino acids. And high quality proteins would include animal-based products like beef, you know, bison, chicken, fish, eggs, whey, dairy. These are all high quality proteins. Typically, um, you know, it's so funny. I, I was, I think I was dreaming about this last night as I was <laughs> thinking about it. It's so ridiculous, but this is the kind of things that I think about. And um, animals make the appropriate amino acid profile for other animals. And plants have the appropriate amino acid profile to nourish plants, like for plants. And and that's what we have to really think about. Um, So those are the high quality proteins and lower quality proteins, again, are really based on those limiting amino acids, would be things like pea alone or uh, quinoa alone or a plant-based proteins, simply based on the differentiation of those amino acids. So I asked you this like six years ago, I'm gonna ask again, because we do have vegetarian listeners if you were vegetarian or vegan how would you set up your diet to get the right amount of protein yeah well number one i would say are you metabolically healthy or not how what is the carbohydrate load that you can tolerate because i believe that whole food diet is best Mm -hmm. and in order to do a whole food diet while you are vegan or vegetarian is very challenging it's not so challenging when you're younger because you can actually manage that carbohydrate load, but it does become more challenging the more mature you get because oftentimes um, you're not training as hard, perhaps your hormones are declining, you don't have as much muscle. For an individual who is vegan or vegetarian and younger, I would say if they can tolerate the amino acids, then you're looking at, or the, the carbohydrate load, you're looking at soy, 
you're looking at, you know, chickpea type products. Um, but the consumption will probably be anywhere from 25 to 30 percent more dietary calories and protein. And typically, so for example, if you're going to choose soy, you'd likely want to choose a higher amount you'd, you'd need to eat. So for example, if you were going to eat uh, 20 grams of a whey protein, so you're going to do one whey protein scoop, you might need um, 45 grams of soy protein to equate to that 20 grams of whey. Can it, can it be done? Totally. Absolutely. One is just going to have to likely increase that total amount um, which is 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 going to be important. And I would also say, uh, so number one, increase total amount of calories from protein, 20 to 30% more. The other thing is making sure that you're eating in discrete meals. So vegan or vegetarian um, meal patterns, from what I've seen, there's a lot of smaller meals because people are hungrier and they're mm. trying to maintain their blood sugar because we know that that dietary protein helps with blood sugar stabilization is really focusing on the first meal of the day being optimized for dietary protein and the last meal of the day optimized for dietary protein. Um, and that would roughly be about 50 grams um, or per potentially a little higher if it's only coming from plant-based sources. Now, if you don't mind doing more supplementation, the rice pea blends are great. Um, assuming that those branched chain amino acids and all amino acid profiles are met and just adding in kind of um, supplemental essential amino acids or even branched chain within a meal, not, not alone. So you don't want to really do that alone. I suggest on, on top of a meal. So what would that look like for a vegetarian? If a vegetarian is having a three ounce fish meal, adding in a scoop of branched chain amino acids would be valuable. Now looking at somebody who you know, eats animal protein, they eat plant foods, they eat everything. Yeah. How much protein per meal are we talking? And what is an example of what that could look like? Yeah, I recommend, so let me uh, preface this by saying that the current RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram, and that's the minimum to prevent deficiencies. We know the data supports that more likely than not double that would be more in an optimal range. And so you're talking about point eight grams per kilogram is, is likely going to be more optimal. To make it easy for people, I recommend one gram per pound ideal body weight. Mm -hmm. uh, that can be titrated up or that can be titrated down depending on your age, depending on your, you know, your need. I think that there's no downside in having it the higher end. So one gram per pound ideal body weight. And this is really important to think about, again, that first meal, no matter if you're vegan, vegetarian, or you eat meat, is, is most critical because you're coming off of an overnight fast. And mm -hmm. skeletal muscle is now primed, so you're coming from a catabolic state, which simply means that it's a non-growth state, it's a breakdown state. One of the other things about skeletal muscle that I didn't mention is that it's an amino acid reservoir. And um, your body will pull from skeletal muscle to get those amino acid needs, mm -hmm. making sure that you put skeletal muscle in an anabolic state a few times during the day can be beneficial in protecting skeletal muscle. Wow. Um, and the way to do that is really focusing on that first meal and potentially that last meal to be the most robust in protein. And that would, again, if you are an animal-based eater, 50 grams of protein between 30 and 50, but ideally actually closer to 50. 
because now you've maxed out this muscle protein synthesis effect. Wow. So I'm curious because I'm trying to get, I know Kay and I are both thinking like we need to up our protein for each meal. And so how do you think about what you eat? Like what is a typical meal for you? Because I feel like I'm still struggling to get that protein intake on each meal. Totally. So I actually do a lot of dairy which I'm sure you guys are like shocked about. And I think it's just very easy to consume. So cottage, cottage cheese, it might be a cup of cottage cheese. Okay. Super, uh, super easy. Um, and that's, that's just very easy for me. Maybe it's a little bit more or even Greek yogurt. Mm -hmm. Um, I do eat a lot of bison and beef. We make ground beef patties, make it super easy, wrap them in lettuce and do whatever. Um, I would say that those are the big ways that we do it. I love a nice ribeye. Make it easy yeah. so we don't overcomplicate it. We just really focus on dietary protein, eggs. So we might do eggs and turkey bacon. Easy. So, yeah. And the other thing is eating dietary protein first in your meals. So for example, um, protein has a satiating effect because of the effect on gut hormones, effect on the brain. So eating protein first and then following it with carbohydrates is very valuable. Do you practice intermittent fasting? Do you ever? I do. You I do. do. And actually for the longest time, I would say, I don't care when your first meal of the day is. And I was talking to a girlfriend of mine, uh, Kristen Holmes. Do you know her? She's a PhD. Kristen Holmes. She is um, part of the, the medical team at WHOOP. And we were talking because we share a, a common group of interest, like a a common group that we both service. So elite military operators and individuals that are like doing crazy things. And for the longest time, I would say, I didn't care when you ate your first meal. And in fact, I would fast till like noon and then stop eating at eight Mm -hmm. or even longer and then push my feeding window later. And, and, you know, I had a, a great conversation with her who, by the way, she should definitely come on your podcast. She's an amazing scientist. Yeah. And she's like, well, you know, the data, the circadian biology data, the circadian rhythm di- biology data would suggest that eating earlier on in the day is actually much more in line with the way humans would eat. And that in fact, that when you have them feed the same and you push that feeding window back and they're in under high stress situations, that they have more metabolic dysregulation with an isocaloric diet. Mm -hmm. Meaning isocaloric means the same macronutrient profile just eaten later on in the day, they show uh, disfavorable or more unfavorable blood markers. Mm. So I'm still working on it. I still like to fast during the day, but this is something that I am considering. Yeah. So the traditionally right now people are skipping typically breakfast right? later eating a huge meal at night and the data is showing maybe that we should actually flip that, flip that. Yeah. And that you should actually eat earlier on in the day and then stop as the sun goes down. And I'm always curious how this is like with women in their reproductive years, because whenever I don't eat breakfast, I feel completely crazy. So. Yeah. And I, you know, I would say that also when I was trying to get pregnant, I had been fasting a lot and uh, I was very athletic at the time, you know, and one of the things is, is it does create this hypothalamic stress, this hypo- hypothalamic pituitary access stress that you see a lot of female athletes go through uh, when they are fasting. And so perhaps if you are trying to get pregnant, you know, signaling to the body that you're in a, you know, again, this is arbitrary, like a safe space where you can 
reproduce may be beneficial as opposed to going through periods of fasting. I want to talk about pre-workouts because if you're, sorry, Yasmin, I'm kind of jumping. No, please. Um, if you're on TikTok, you're on Instagram, you see a lot of people getting up, having their pre-workout, going to the gym. What are your stand, what's your stand on pre-workouts and supplementing to help build muscle? Okay. So pre-workout, I am a fan. Uh, surprise. Everyone's like, you are? Yes. Give me all the caffeine that is inappropriate. And if you, I'm not your doctor, I'm not telling you to do this, but I have two very little children and a husband finishing medical school. So wow. if, yes, yes. Like, and the guy's up at four 30 in the morning and he's like, why are you up so late? I'm like, honey, it's five 30. Get out of here. So, um, I am actually a huge fan of pre-workout, but I'm also aware of the risks, benefits and consequences. So let's talk about that. The more you become accustomed to training with a stimulant, which I, I do use, the harder it becomes to train without it right? So you kind of like prep this dopamine drive to go in and train and you're, you're, you're layering, you're augmenting loud music with a bunch of caffeine with like hyping yourself up, which I do every day. Mm-hmm. And you know, that saying like, don't do as I do, do as I say, mm-hmm. not necessarily a great strategy. Okay. But um, you, so there is risk to that because it becomes very difficult to train with that same intensity if you are not doing those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I do use pre-workout. I do think it's very valuable. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that there's a consequence to that. And that consequence is, are you going to crash afterwards? Probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you use it without a break? It's it's not ideal. Again, so the question is becoming... Um, how do you train for health and longevity, which you do actually have to put in the work? And how do you also regulate your nervous system? And those yeah. are, those are, you know, we are all in seasons. So one has to determine what season are you in? Right. Like if you are trying to get pregnant, pre-workout, you know, whatever that is might not be the thing for you. But if you know that you're slacking with your skeletal muscle mass and you're struggling with motivation and you just don't feel like it, then maybe you're going to go through a period of two months where you are doing every uh, process necessary to get your mind right. Totally. And what about, I'm new to this space. So yeah, pre-workout. I'm an OG of this. So there you go. So I'm going to tell you the pre-workout supplement. Like, I don't even know what that is. A pre-workout supplement. I had no idea what that even is. Oh, I know what I'm sending. Uh, I'm sending this to you. I'm excited. I'm sending it to all three of you. And this, I'm including Andrew, and you guys are never going to talk to me again. You're literally <laughs> never going to talk to me ever again. Tell me, what is this? Never going to talk to me. <laughs> I'll send it to Kish. I know she'll talk to me. You might never talk to me. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so pre-workout, and that could have like beta alanine. It usually has caffeine. Um, okay. It might have like beetroot juice for vasodilation. It could have whatever you want. Um, I use first form. I have been working with that company since 2018. Um, yeah, so this is what I use. Okay. So now I've talked to you about how you're going to blast your nervous system. So now I'm going to tell you the non-blastful nervous system techniques. There are three supplements that I absolutely recommend. Maybe there's four, but I'm going to tell you for muscle health. Number one, creatine. I was just going to ask you about the OG creatine. Um, 
it's great, especially also if you're vegan or vegetarian, because the, the, the primary uh, intake of creatine comes from red meat. So creatine five grams a day, you don't have to load it. It, it works great. The other thing is I'm really big into something called urolithin A. Like I'm obsessed with this. And uh, the company that I use is MitoPure. I'm obsessed with this product. Now, what does urolithin A do? Urolithin A is a component that roughly 40% of people don't make. And it's almost a prebiotic, but what it, what it does, it actually has good data to support its effect on mitochondria. So we're not talking about muscle mass per se, but we're talking about the efficiency of utilization and the energy of the skeletal muscle, which, you know, we talked about uh, strength and hypertrophy and strength and hypertrophy. I think about leveraging creatine, um, but really for, you know, listen, creatine is great for all of it, but, uh, and I, and I only put it in buckets so that for understanding purposes, the urolithin A really targets mitochondria. And mitochondria mm -hmm. decreases as you age, the ability to turn it over, the ability uh, for density, potentially, if you're not training the way that you did, decreases. So urolithin A is phenomenal. It takes a couple months to work, but amazing. Then fish oil, especially for women. So there's some data to support, and they think it has something to do with uh, the ribosomes and potentially the way in which the muscle term turns over. But fish oil, omega-3 fish oil for women may be even more impactful than it is for men mm. for skeletal muscle health. Okay. And then the other thing is, and I know I said like I just had three and maybe I had four, is vitamin D. There's vitamin D receptors in skeletal muscle. And are you taking creatine? Because that's like my thing that I'm about to venture into. No, I'm not taking it because I eat so much red meat right now. You need so much red meat. Okay. Gosh. But I am taking urolithin A, I am taking vitamin D, and I am taking fish oil. And I am taking pre-workout and lots of caffeine. <laughs> hey, I'm being truthful. Yeah, I, I love it. Okay. So gosh, there I had like five questions there, but let me so think. So the other thing that we should talk about in terms of building muscle and maintaining muscle is understanding that uh, dietary protein you really don't want to eat small amounts throughout the day. It really should be targeted, it targeted bolus amounts. Um, and, you know, the, the data would suggest it doesn't matter when you eat it. So the data, like the uh, International Society for Sports Nutrition would argue that it doesn't necessarily, so their position statement would argue that based on the protein research, it doesn't matter when you eat protein during the day. Mm -hmm. Um it matters your 24 hour in ingestion. And I would say, again, my research is really in aging. And of course I trained under Dr. Donna Lehman. And I would argue that there is benefit uh, and certainly no harm in spreading out that protein ingestion when it comes to metabolic health, because it really allows you to eat in a way where you're not binge eating later at, at mm -hmm. night, you're not being disorganized and chaotic with your eating. We do know it does stimulate tissue. And we also know that overweight tissue, obese tissue is different than healthy skeletal muscle tissue. So the, the response to muscle protein synthesis is actually different in an obese person or overweight person than it is in a lean person. And I think that that is really underappreciated in the fact that, you know, we look at these things and we say, okay, well, everyone should be doing it this way. And, you know, it doesn't matter when you eat protein, as long as you have it in a 24 hour period. Again, this is according to the International Society for Sports Nutrition. And I would argue as a clinician and a geriatrician that we know that certain pathologies, muscle protein synthesis is blunted. 
And muscle protein synthesis is really the surrogate marker for uh, muscle growth. It's kind of the thing that we look at and we target in in studies and in the literature. You were talking about aging. So I want to talk about basically what shifts throughout the various stages of a woman's life. Yeah. How is it going to change from somebody who, let's say, is my age, your age, our age, and then going somebody who's going through perimenopause yeah. and then somebody who's going through menopause and then post? Mm-hmm. You know, when you're younger, well, let's not even say that. When you're younger, I, I qualify that because I'm sure I'm going to move the needle every time. But when you're in prime reproductive age, your hormones are robust testosterone is high, estrogen is high, progesterone, right? There's these ebbs and flows. Um, Your capacity to build muscle for the most part is pretty great. Um, And maybe it's not as great as it is in adolescence, but it's still, you know, you still have this capacity. And as you get older, and by the way, I want to mention something else is that there's a lot of discussion on changing and eating for your cycles and changing your workouts for your cycles. I don't actually recommend that to my patients. Interesting. I can appreciate what the data says, but if you are not an elite Olympian, that this is going to really move the needle for you, then I think that you do yourself a disservice by number one, you are, um, you know, adding a another layer and barrier to execution. Mm-hmm. I've been training my whole life. I've never altered it with my with my periods. I have Olympians that I take care of and you know, they don't alter it either. Um, but I, I can appreciate where some of the inform I think it's very interesting. And I think that if you are a certain type of elite athlete and you need to adjust those things because you're really concerned about injury or, you know, in that way, I can appreciate that. But I think for the average woman, and I consider myself an average fitness goer, I would never change it. I don't think you're average fitness. Goer. <laughs> so we're way below average over here. But I mean, I guess maybe my question to that is, what about people who just genuinely are so fatigued or so like right. just their period comes and they're like, I can't even. Yeah. Okay. So then that is the exception. And, you know, there, there can be that uh, component and then like working with a physician that maybe, maybe you need a little bit more progesterone or maybe yeah. you, there's some way to, maybe you need a little bit more calories fine, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Those are, you know, perhaps the exception, but I would say the majority of women, uh, not everybody, but the majority of women, uh, this adds a layer of complexity that really does a disservice. Mm. Um, And that, again, that is just my clinical perspective. Um, You know, so there's that. Now, what happens in in menopause, menopause hormones drop, right? You're perhaps, you know, really estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, you still are obviously producing these things, but you know, this is no longer an ovarian production. This now comes from the adrenal glands. And it, this is the time where you really have to think about, in my opinion, lifting to get the stimulus that you need. And this is where heavier lifting, and listen, the data would support that whether you are lifting heavier light, as long as you are going to a particular level of fatigue, it doesn't matter. There's this strength hypertrophy continuum. So what I am, again, I, I'm qualifying this because um, I think it's easier when we think about things in a way that can be applicable to us and to the listener. Mm-hmm. So could someone going through menopause lift and do 50 reps until she fails? Totally. And get the same result? Yes. However, I will say that this is typically the time I recommend women really start focusing on strength. 
and particularly strength training and actually lifting heavier and really focusing on strength. And then, you know, it's some, you know, component hypertrophy to maintain that, that muscle. And then I also recommend high intensity interval training more frequently, two to three times a week, because I actually recommend high intensity interval training over steady state for women going, you know, post-menopause because it improves insulin sensitivity. So the stimulus is so intense that you're going in for short periods of time and you're really making a difference in insulin sensitivity over the long term as you continue to do that. So it's interesting. You're almost saying that at this stage, you need to push yourself even more when typically in society, we would say this is the time when people slow down. Totally. And then what happens is then they go to through like Jenny Craig and oh my God, I put on weight, like all this stuff. And then it is this, this down, uh, this downturn, you know, it's no wonder people get depressed. Mm -hmm. And then of course sleep. So then the other thing I would say is getting tested for sleep apnea. And also I am not against depending on someone's risks for hormone replacement. The Women's Health Initiative really did a disservice to the conceptually thinking about hormone replacement. Obviously, everything has risks and you have to weigh the risks and benefits out. But that being said, quality of life matters. Health span matters. And, you know, you mentioned sleep. I know we didn't talk too much about that, but it's so critical. And I I don't think we talk about it enough. So you said it's important to get tested for sleep apnea. Everyone that I think has sleep apnea thinks they don't have sleep apnea. So what are some characteristics? Yeah. If someone's listening that they're like, do I have it? If they think they're okay. Everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody. So here's the thing, right? So in my practice, I take care of a lot of women. And uh, I would say the practice is 50% men and 50% women. The women, you just have to like, they, they'll be more likely to listen, right? Like you'll just say, listen, um, I really think that you should do it as progesterone, as estrogen declines, you know, part of these uh, play a role in respiratory drive. And they'll be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. My hormones are decreasing. For the guys, forget it. Here's what you tell them. Now, this, by the way, is true. Every athlete I have, and every Navy SEAL I have, by the way, I'm married to a SEAL. So I see these guys in volume, right? There's a lot of these guys in the practice. Every single one has sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's not about being overweight. It has to do, if you have a 17 inch neck, you have sleep apnea. If you have an over 17 inch neck, you have sleep apnea. That's crazy. And here's what you say. It's not about obesity, right? Every single one of these guys these fit guys have sleep apnea. And it's also not about, it's not necessarily about getting older because I think a lot of people, their resistance is, oh, I have to wear a CPAP, I'm old. Like it just, it's not that either. It can be super sexy. It's like the underwater, you know, it's just like getting ready for takeoff. Pretend like it's an aerodynamic space room. (laughs) And then you know, you both have it. It's ridiculous. It's hilarious. Fine. (laughs) It's like getting ready for, I I tease my husband, so my husband has sleep apnea and I tease him. He literally looks like he's getting ready to go on a fighter pilot uh, expedition. He's got the the mask, the earplugs, the thing. But I'm sure it's significantly improved his sleep. You cannot go through the, you know, we think about Alzheimer's. So one of the things that we always Mm. screen people for was sleep apnea. If you are not getting sleep, we know that the brain, the glial cells that clean themselves, the metabolic byproducts clean themselves during your time of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest risk factors for dementia and cognitive impairment is lack of sleep and mm-hmm. lack of deep sleep. It's a huge risk factor. 
Now, if only we can find a solution for the moms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean that? Oh, yeah. The lack of sleep. We get a lot of questions from that because obviously sleep is so critical and people are like, well, if I'm a mom, I'm not sleeping as well. I mean, with your patients, do you recommend, yeah. I mean, even for your own life, because I know you have yeah. two young kids. I do. It's really tricky. And I will say for the baby, we don't get them in the middle of the night. And for both babies, we never got them in the middle of the night unless they were so... If someone, or you could have to do shifts. So if you know that the baby is going to be up, you have to split the shifts so that you are getting uninterrupted sleep because you will not heal uh, as effectively and as efficiently as you can. And being really strict about it is, is the reality. And now we're kind of in a new phase. Again, everything has seasons, which is why I'm probably pounding the caffeine is that I'm in the season where my three-year-old likes to not sleep in her bed. Um, there's nothing you can do. But all of the other things that we can do should be done. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, and then I'm telling you, split up the time. So for example, um, one of the things that we do, these are just very practical tips is, so number one, with the kids, we never get them. Um, they go to bed. They're on a pretty strict sleep schedule. If they have to get um, like night feedings or whatever, you can bring in a night doula for a, a stretch of four days so that you know that when you go into your sleep deficit, so let's say you bring them in for four days, then you go into a sleep deficit, that these things are structured as much as possible. Um, then the other thing is I, I'll split it with my husband. So for example, um, I will sleep with my daughter so that he can get a couple good nights of sleep and then we'll alternate. It's not ideal, but again, getting um, trying not to go so deep into a sleep deficit is really important in that way. Um, then the other thing is uh, that can be really valuable is um, decreasing any kind of external stimulus. So, you know, there's light receptors on our skin actually can affect our sleep-wake cycle. So really making sure that the room is dark and any kind of ambient light turning it off. And that can be really helpful. It's interesting, right? So even if a light is on, but you have a mask on and you can't yeah. see it, you don't necessarily want light on your skin. You just... You want it to be dark. Oh, yeah. We're all about that in our household. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, Drew's always like, move your alarm clock. Like, even the basic things you don't realize. We have a pitch dark room, but he's like, it makes a difference, like you were saying. And I listen to it and I have better sleep ever now. Yeah, for so. sure. Those are some, you know, practical things that, that people can do. So I want to kind of leave people on this last note. If they are listening and they are just getting started, they pretty sedentary, they're wanting to kind of shift things around. What are the top three things? And they don't know anything about this space, but they know that they want to feel better. What are the things that you're telling them? So the first most important thing that they have to understand, number one, is they have to know their weakness. They have to know that the human brain is going to shy away from anything unfamiliar. Number one, because if I tell you the next couple of things that I'm going to tell you, that's it's never even going to make it past there until we bring out into the open that the human mind will find discomfort in unfamiliarity period end of story so now if you absolutely anticipate and plan for that now we can move to the next things mm -hmm. okay so now everyone is aware of their weaknesses they're all going to say their handful of reasons why not like i don't know enough about this uh, I don't know how to exercise. I can't cook. I'm not going to eat this. Um, it's not really going to matter. Am I missing anything? 
I mean, I'm sure that there's 10, 15 more. So, okay. <laughs> now we have identified the fact that you are going to tell yourself no. That's on the side. The second thing is um, getting up and working with a, a healthcare professional, like a, a fitness professional. This can be online. So there's no cost barrier, right? Mm-hmm. No cost barrier. Pick someone that you trust. Um to begin to think about and work on these things. So no cost barrier, online training, getting to the gym. There's often uh, a gym membership does not have to be expensive. It, it has to be budgeted in, right? And it, it could be as little as $15 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say that, again, um, you know, that you don't want to do that, then getting a kettlebell or a piece of equipment like a kettlebell that you can get from Amazon. So really getting up and moving and actually not doing the thing that you always did. Most people are like, okay, well, I've always mm-hmm. gone out for a jog and, and I'm just going to do that again. That's not going to be um, challenging yourself and that's not what we're looking for. So you've already done that and that's already gotten you here. So we're not doing that anymore. We're going to find and learn a new skill. And that new skill is going to be some type of resistance training, whether it's a kettlebell or whether it's going to the gym, even if it's machines. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is really understanding where you fall in the protein spectrum. How much protein are you actually getting in a day and really focusing on whatever that is, upping it. And your goal should be one gram per pound ideal body weight, and then you can adjust it from there. But just start there. Number one, identify your weaknesses and the things you're going to tell yourself. Once you push through that discomfort, you're going to start to move in a different way. So if you've always, again, done the jogging thing or the walking thing, you're going to take that off the table for yourself. And that's going to be either online exercise program or go to the gym and some kind of resistance training. And number three, you're going to identify how much protein you're eating and how you're going to improve that. Simple. One gram per pound ideal body weight. So are you recommending that people count their macros? I mean, if you want to see where you are, it's the way to do it. And nobody wants to hear that. Like nobody. (laughs) The reality is, do you count your money? Do you look at what your blood pressure is? Do you know how fast you're going when you're driving? So why is it that we know all these other things, but the one metrics that we're not going to look at is what we're eating? I'm just curious. I just leave this at the table at the listener to see where is that resistance? Is it annoying? It's totally annoying. Do it for two weeks so you know what it is. But Mm. to say that we shouldn't count calories for some other reason doesn't make any sense. You look at the metrics, how fast you're driving, you look at what your blood pressure is, you look at all these glucose monitor number, like you look at all these other numbers, why would this be the one number? Wait, because it's emotional, like why? It's just a number. So yes, I do. Well, you left me a lot to think about. <laughs> you guys know that in our space, people are like, don't measure calories. So what yeah. I'm saying is definitely balancing a spectrum of what we hear in the functional medicine space. But the reality is, is my job is to bring evidence-based science forward with, you know, decades of experience in this particular realm. Um, right. And I think that if we can, you know, everything shifts and swings to extremes. And the goal is if we can reframe the paradigm and bring the extremes back to a middle ground, just for a sense of understanding and question why we believe certain things and why we believe certain things are hard or correct or incorrect, then we can make a real change. I love that. 
That's awesome. Well, Gabrielle, thank you for joining us. I feel like we could talk to you for many hours on many topics, but tell us more quickly about your book. I know we briefly talked about it before we started properly recording, but would love to share that with our audience. Yes. So I also have a great podcast, by the way. And did you know that it made the entrepreneur top? What? I'm so happy. That's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. That is amazing. That was, that was like, I was super pumped about that. And I don't really get pumped about things because I'm, you know, just like executing, but I put so much blood, sweat and tears into this podcast and I was really, really excited. So I have the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon show, which pains me that I named it that. The only reason I named it that is so that people could find it. I had 500 other better names, but people were like, well, but no one's going to look that up. So anyway, the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon show release every Tuesday. Um, and uh, that's amazing. I have a book coming out called Forever Strong. And that is coming. It goes on presale in February and comes out in September. And for the people that actually do the presale, there's going to be some uh, special gifts. So there's going to be a series of uh, webinar emails that come through, which is cool. And um, if people are interested in applying to be a patient, they can do that on my website or unless you know one of these beautiful girls, then direct referral is always the way to get in. Um, I have a free newsletter on my website they can sign up for. And of course, Instagram, YouTube, very active on all of those, Twitter, Dr. Gabrielle Line. Amazing. And we'll put this all in our show notes so everybody knows where to find you. But thank you so, so much for joining us today, Gabrielle. And Hopefully we'll do something in person sometime soon. I can't wait. I'll be there. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome.